It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, Featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders. All set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about a memorial to a police constable who died in the line of duty. On the plaque is inscribed his name, his rank, and a few details about his tragic demise. But one key detail is missing, as there is also a man with a name and a rank, who some say deserves to be remembered too. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details, and as a dramatisation of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 110, A Memorial to the Fallen. Today, I'm standing in Hyde Park, W2. A leisurely stroll west from the site of the Hyde Park bombing, a short dawdle south from the three possible robberies or murders of Vincent Patrick Carey. A brisk walk north from where John George Haig toasted his old pal William McSwan before dissolving his body in acid. And a little saunter from the ice disaster on the Serpentine. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Perched near the border of Hyde Park and Kensington Gardens is the old police house a three-storey, brown-brick, Queen Anne-style lodge built in 1902, with crisp white windowsills, a neatly manicured garden, and Victorian street lamps. If anything, it looks more like a manor house than it does a police station. The Royal Park's keepers, as they were known until 1974, were a police constabulary separate from the Metropolitan Police, who were there to keep peace and order in London's royal parks. Today, as a constant wail of sirens encircles Hyde Park, inside the lush greenery of this 350-acre former hunting ground, life is a little more sedate 
than in the city itself. It's not without crime, as there's often a rogue barbecue to extinguish, a noisy stereo to quieten, rowdy crowds to quell at Speaker's Corner, and the endless theft of phones from a long procession of posing pouting narcissists who believe that Instagram isn't worth tuppence unless it's chock full of shoddy videos of their stupid grinning faces. But during World War II, the policing of Hyde Park faced some truly challenging times, as it wasn't just an escape for the city's civilians or a pasture for the grazing sheep, as to protect the city from the daily onslaught of Messerschmitts and Heinkel bombers from the German Luftwaffe. Hyde Park was a strategic military base, complete with soldiers, barracks and a radar station, as well as defences and offensive weapons, such as barrage balloons, rocket batteries and gun emplacements. Largely undocumented, much of Hyde Park's wartime history has been lost to the mists of time. And although a memorial rightfully stands at the old police house to Constable Jack William Avery, who gave his life doing his job and protecting the city, this is not a story about one fallen hero, but of two. One who was remembered in death, and the other who was forgotten while he was still alive. As it was here, on Friday the 5th of July 1940, at 1.45pm, the Constable Avery left his post on a routine job, where two very different heroes would meet, and their lives would be changed forever. On the 5th of July 2007, a memorial to mark the 67th anniversary of the murder of P.C. Avery was held at the northeast corner of the old police station. In attendance was the Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir Ian Blair, the officers of the renamed Royal Parks Police, and following a mass media appeal by the superintendent, Margaret Penfold, who was a distant relative of the deceased constable. With the gloomy sunless sky speckled with scattered showers, which reflected the somber tone of this lost summer's day, Jack's death represented one of 16,000 officers who had died in the line of duty since policing began in Britain, including 14 who would be killed that year alone. To honour him, on the brown brick wall of his former police station was placed a grey square slate etched with the Metropolitan Police emblem. And in a white aerial font were these few words. To the memory of Jack William Avery, War Reserve Constable 890A, who was murdered near this spot on the 5th day of July, 1940. To the many people who pass this plaque, this is all they will ever know. Like many ordinary people, who died to give us the freedom that we often squander, as Jack wasn't a lord, a general, or blessed with wealthy benefactors, who would ensure that a rose-tinted view of his potted history would be nationally marked with reverence and honour. The details of Jack's ordinary life are as scant as the words 
on his own memorial. Jack William Avery was born on the 5th of November 1911 in Bromley. As the only known child of a 29-year-old mechanic and chauffeur called Frank Gerard Avery and a 30-year-old teacher called Bertha Wilding, Jack was born and raised in an ample lodging at five Northall Villas in the nearby borough of Mottingham. Their income was small, their home life was happy, and although his birth was unexpected, he was no less loved. Being educated locally, Jack was described as a good student, although he was nothing exceptional. He passed his school certificate, and just like his father, he trained as a motor mechanic. But being short, asthmatic, and cursed with bad eyesight, Jack's career options were always going to be limited. Described as kind and polite, Jack was a slightly built, peaceful young man with old-fashioned manners, who would always tip his hat to a lady, open doors for mothers, and never forgot his P's and Q's. By 1939, being recently engaged and living with his fiancée in a small flat, Jack's little life was as good as anyone else's in those turbulent months before the world was plunged into war. Keen to fight for his king and country, on the 3rd of September 1939, 28-year-old Jack marched down to the Lord's Cricket Ground to enlist in the armed forces. Experience wasn't necessary, as all the right recruit needed was four simple things. To be young, fit, eager and healthy. But of the four, Jack only had three. Listed as 4F, there were many reasons why a seemingly healthy young man like Jack could fail his medical and be declared unfit to serve. In Jack's case, it was his height, his sight and his lungs. Still eager to do his bit for Britain, that very same day, Jack enlisted as a war reserve constable for the Royal Park's keepers, based at the old police house in Hyde Park. For such a slight man, it was an odd career. But with the city bludgeoned by a constant bombardment, the park under military control, and the air thick with suspicion, as possible foreign agents lurked within. Being in a time of great mistrust and uncertainty, his role was no less vital. And yet, Jack's new job and its location perfectly suited his mild demeanour, as although his humdrum routine would often be interspersed by the swift crack of cannon fire and the brilliant flash of surface-to-air rockets, he liked being an officer who peacefully patrolled the lush green oblong of ponds, trees and sheep. Only of the six years the war would last, Constable Avery would only serve ten months and two days. On Friday the 5th of July 1940, at 1.45pm, having been alerted by a keen-eyed member of the public who had seen a dark, suspicious figure lying low in the thick grass, furtively making notes with a pad and pencil of the arch of Allied gun emplacements 
positioned at the northwest edge by Lancaster Gate. Although unarmed, PC Avery dashed to the scene, and in the pursuit of doing his duty, he was stabbed to death. His murder would leave his elderly parents childless, and his grieving fiance without a husband to be. This was his story, and of course, it warrants a memorial to the sacrifice that this selfless hero made. But this is only half of the story, as unusually, the other hero in this tragic tale was his murderer. His name was Frank Cobbett, but few people would know that, or even care. Frank Stephen Cobbett was born on the 21st of November 1897, in a small, one-roomed lodging in a tiny tumble-down house at 19 John Street in Battersea. As the third eldest child to John Cobbett, a builder, and Mary Ann Taylor, a housewife, just like his two older siblings, Thomas and Ellen, who were shamelessly conceived out of wedlock, by the time that both parents had scraped together enough money to marry, Mary Ann was heavily pregnant, the wedding was a shotgun affair, and Frank would forever be cursed with the cruel title of a bastard. Aged four, with Mary Ann's mother in tow, moving into a slightly bigger, but equally tiny brown-bricked cottage at 28 Mullins Path in Mortlake. This family of six, soon to be seven, lived a life which was hard, cold, cramped and chaotic. Fights were frequent, food was scarce, and tragedy would soon strike. In 1907, when Frank was only nine, his mother died. In need of a wife to care for him and his children, John Cobbett hastily married a recent widow called Ada Coxon, barely one year after his wife's death. And in the two cramped rooms of their squalid little cottage now lived a family of twelve, including Frank, his dad, his dead mother's mum, his three siblings, a stepmother, four step-siblings, and a new baby on the way. Frank was devastated at his mum's death, but equally distraught at his dad's betrayal. Being a little slow at reading and writing, Frank scraped through basic education. He was unskilled, uneducated, and as tradition dictated, doomed to follow his father in the trade of being a bricklayer. Disliking his dad, bored with his lot in life, and eager to escape a tough upbringing in which he felt very little love. Frank was prone to outbursts of anger, a flaw which could only be cured by drawing. He wasn't a great artist, and his talent was only so-so, but he was only truly calm and content when he was sat in the sun, lying on his belly and breathing softly, with a pencil and pad in his hand, sketching. Everybody has a hobby. This was his. And yet, 
The soothing act of drawing or doodling would guide Frank through some of the darkest moments of his turbulent little life, many of which lay right ahead. On the 12th of December 1917, three years into the First World War, with the influenza pandemic wiping out troops faster than any bullets, bombs or mustard gas could, with the army in dire need of fresh meat for the grinder. Just like Jack Avery, Frank grabbed his conscription papers and enlisted. Unlike Jack, being young, fit, eager and healthy, Frank ticked all the boxes. But against his father's wishes, being a veteran himself who had witnessed at first hand the horrors of conflict, after a bitter row so fierce that neither man would speak to each other again, Frank Cobbett went to war. Having passed basic training, 20-year-old Frank Cobbett became Private Cobbett of the 3rd East Kent Regiment and was shipped off to the boggy, blood-soaked quagmire of the French front line. With the brooding skies thick with acrid smoke, the mud often knee-deep, and the vile stench of rotting flesh as dead comrades died where they fell. Being too dangerous to move or bury, so often many bodies became makeshift sandbags. Like so many men, Frank was subjected to horror after horror. And throughout this bloody conflict, although he had been issued with a Lee-Enfield 303 rifle, the one thing that truly saved his life and his sanity was his pad and pencil. On the 11th of November 1918, with the war officially over, the enemy having surrendered, 20 million people dead and 21 million wounded, as memorials were erected to those brave souls who had selflessly given their lives so that we may live. The unsung heroes who had survived fought on. Following the Sinai and Palestine campaign of 1915 to 1918, along with the 10th Battalion, comprising of the Royal East Kent and West Kent Yeomanry, with barely a day to catch their breath, Private Frank Cobbett and his compatriots were sent to Egypt to defend a key strategic point on the Suez Canal. Just like Jack, he did his part for king and country. Just like Jack, he would be hailed a hero. And just like Jack, his service would be short. As although the aftermath of the First World War would rage on for many years and decades to come, Private Frank S. Cobbett would serve for only 15 months and three days. On an unrecorded date, in February 1919, whilst doing his duty, Frank was cut down by an enemy bullet, which hit him squarely in the chest. And although this hot fast lead had missed any vital organs, blood vessels, and crucially his spine, leaving him with what seemed like just a small hole in his right breast, the force had blasted out a chunk of flesh from his back, ripping him open 
from shoulder to shoulder. Frank was lucky to be alive. And although his war was over, the pain and trauma was not. On the 15th of March, 1919, being patched up and shipped home, 21-year-old Frank was discharged from the army. He was given two medals, a bottle of painkillers, and a pitiful pension of just eight shillings a week, a fifth of the working wage. And like so many battle-scarred veterans who had returned home all broken, the soldiers who died were rightfully remembered. But those who had survived were cruelly forgotten. Still furious at his father and unwilling to embrace his family, Frank tried to return to a normal life. But this once eager boy had died back in Suez. And although barely two years older, what now remained was a moody, sullen shadow of his former self, crippled by constant pain and dumped by his country. Unable to carry a hod of bricks on his shattered back, this fit young lad could no longer earn an honest wage as a labourer. He worked for three years on and off as a brewer, but plagued by pain, in 1923 he lost his last regular job. And being illiterate and increasingly angry, his options were limited. Over the next two decades, as life for the average citizen returned to normal, Frank became invisible. He had no home, no job, no money and no help. His family was gone, his friends had disowned him and he had no wife, no girlfriend or kids. Unable to adjust, Frank became a nobody, a nothing, who drifted from day to day, place to place and doorway to park bench. To the many thousands who passed this vagrant slumped in the gutter, they didn't see him as a hero, but as a dirty shambling wreck who lived out of hostels, begged for spare change, and foraged for food scraps in the bins. Frank Cobbett had disappeared, and like so many ordinary heroes who gave their health, life, and sanity to protect us, with no title, rank, or wealth to ensure that he would be fondly remembered by strangers. The only reason we know anything about his life after his wartime service is by his criminal record. On the 7th of February 1930, at Nottingham Magistrates Court, he was sentenced to one month's hard labour for smashing two windows in a peak of anger. Returning to London, and living rough, he received four further sentences in quick succession. On the 13th of June 1932, he was bound over for three years for begging. On the 20th of February 1933, he served 14 days hard labour for begging. On the 7th of April 1933, he served 10 days hard labour for assaulting a policeman. A further one day in prison on the 5th of February 1934 for begging and on the 1st of October 1935, he was fined £2 for vagrancy. His crime? Being homeless. 
by the 3rd of September 1939, as motor mechanic Jack Avery enlisted as a war reserve constable based at the old police house in Hyde Park. Former Private F. Cobbett of the 3rd East Kent Regiment had been alone and isolated from a hearty meal, a warm bed, and even just a simple conversation with another person for almost two decades. In fact, the most contact he had with another human being of recent was the bruises, cracked ribs, and a fractured jaw he had sustained, having been beaten up by a cowardly gang of drunken louts, all because he was weak, dirty, and vulnerable. For longer than any human should endure, Frank lived alone, he lived in fear, and terrified of being attacked again. He was armed with an old rusty kitchen knife he had found at the bottom of a bin. But as lonely as his life was, he still had one love which would always comfort him. Drawing. As no matter how poor he was, even if all he could find was a broken stub and a bit of old chip paper, Frank always found solace by sitting quietly and sketching. Friday the 5th of July 1940 was a crisp clear day. As Frank quietly lay in the thick grass of Hyde Park, soaking up the sun alongside the grazing sheep. On his body was his one set of clothes. In his pockets were his worldly possessions, a shaving razor, a pension book, 13 shillings and sixpence. And in his hands, he held a short stubby pencil and a square memo block of paper. And whereas once, this had been a calendar, with every single page left empty and blank. Instead, he used it to sketch. Sometimes he draw a tree, sometimes a street, sometimes a pond full of ducks and geese. He kept to himself and was no bother to anyone. But today, he decided to draw something a little more exciting. Perched by the northwest corner of Hyde Park, a short walk from Lancaster Gate, sat one of the city's military defences. As with the barrage balloons by Kensington and a volley of rockets by Park Lane, the 263rd Battery of the 84th Royal Artillery Regiment had positioned an arch of 3.4-inch mobile anti-aircraft guns with corrugated Nissan huts and a GL Mark I-A radar unit. It was still an unusual sight for a public park, so people often stopped, looked and chatted to the soldiers. But instead, Frank drew. There were two laws which made Frank a criminal without him even raising a single finger. The first was old, and he knew it well. The Vagrancy Act of 1824, having been arrested three times for being hungry and homeless. But the second was new, very new, as having only received royal assent in Parliament just ten months prior, 
the Defence Regulation Act of 1939 were emergency powers to force British civilians onto a war footing. It implemented a national blackout, emptied the prisons to make way for spies and looters, requisitioned factories to make munitions, and to protect the people from the threat of the enemies within. It became illegal to photograph or draw any military bases, buildings, or gun emplacements. At 1.45pm, a 40-year-old carpet fitter called George Bryant ran to the old police house to alert them to a strange man who was hiding in the grass and seemed to be making notes about the guns. Doing his duty, Constable Jack Avery dashed to the scene to apprehend the enemy. What he saw was a man dressed in black, lying low in the grass, his eyes furtively spying, and his hand secretly scribbling. As Jack cautiously sidled up behind this possible Nazi collaborator and potential traitor to the people, the PC barked, What are you doing? doing? Unused to contact and fearful of others, Frank mumbled, What's it got to do with you? you? Unhappy with his reply, Jack snatched up the pad to see for himself. And although to many, it was nothing but a block of tatty paper, to Frank, the sketch pad was everything. As his blood boiled, Frank bellowed, Fuck off, as he got to his knees. Seeing a knife where his body once lay, To defend himself, Jack grabbed his truncheon. To defend himself, Frank pulled a knife. As Frank swung, Jack dodged and cracked Frank hard across the head with his truncheon. And as the constable blew his whistle to call for backup, Frank drove the five-inch blade deep into the top of Jack's left leg. Dashing to the aid of the injured officer, Constable Hyman Krantz blocked the assailant's sight with his cape. And while temporarily blinded, Jack whacked Frank once more on the head to subdue him. And as both men fell, Jack bled profusely. As barely conscious, Frank muttered something incoherent. Pinned to the ground by two burly men, Frank was arrested and charged with the malicious wounding of a constable. To which his only reply was, I was only drawing the guns, that's all. Cruelly, on every witness statement given that day, Frank is described as a low moral person, odd and looking like a tramp. PC Avery was rushed to St Mary's Hospital in Paddington, suffering a single stab wound to his left thigh and groin. Given two transfusions and an emergency operation, sadly Jack died at 8.20am of blood loss and shock. His father was by his side as he passed, but unable to reach her in time. His fiancée never got to say goodbye. At 11.15am, 
on Saturday the 6th of July 1940, 42-year-old Frank Stephen Cobbett, a vagrant of no fixed abode, was charged with the murder of 28-year-old constable Jack William Avery. In a short trial at the Old Bailey, just 10 days later, Frank Cobbett was found guilty, but following an appeal which stated that both men were equally culpable for their actions. His sentence was reduced from the capital charge of murder to the lesser offence of manslaughter, and he would serve 15 years in prison. He did his time, he was released, and very little else is known about him, except that he died in 1980, aged 82. Having died in the line of duty, Constable Jack William Avery was buried. His name is listed on the Met Police's Roll of Honor, and rightfully, he has a memorial to remember the sacrifice that he made. It's great that we live in a country where an ordinary person doing their job can be immortalized for the courage and bravery they've shown, rather than always being ordered to applaud a lord, a general, or a politician who by the size of their statue states that they deserve our thoughts, tears, and respect. But too often, we remember the dead and we mark the fallen. But too easily, we forget those who are still serving and struggling with the physical, mental, and psychological trauma they have suffered and continue to suffer by fighting for our rights and freedoms. Constable Jack Avery was a hero, as was Private Frank Cobbett. The difference was that one was a man with a job, a house, and a wife-to-be, and the other was a nobody with nothing but a pad and a pencil. Every hero deserves to be remembered. So until there's a plaque for Frank, this will be his memorial. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. We've got nine more weeks of your regular Murder Mile episodes, as well as a big multi-part finale to bring us to the end of the season, which has taken ages to research. And up next is Extra Mile, which takes no effort at all. None. Nothing. Zero. Zip. It's as easy as pie or eating pie. Yum. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Liz Tibbet, Roy Harris, Simon Sandals, Cher Bowie, and Fiona McCulloch. I thank all of you for your support. It's very much appreciated. Plus a big welcome to any new listeners to the podcast, and a big thank you to those of you who continue to support it. Murder Mile was researched, written, and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Was, uh, was, uh, was too bad actually it wasn't too bad changing voice have a swig there we go mm. core lummy um hopefully that sounded even better that episode i've been tinkering with the uh, or the ways of uh um trying to do the uh recording on this and today's one's really difficult so i've stopped standing up because I've realised if I just have my back straight, actually, that's not too bad. That kind of works really well. So I've got myself seated down, seated down. But what I've done is I've covered myself in pillows and blankets and everything. So the windows are shut. The curtains are closed. Behind the curtains are all of my bed linen, all my my pillows from bed, from beddy bays. The other curtains are shut. I've got my bathrobe down there. Over my head is my bedtime blanket, which is over my head. So I look like I'm in some kind of uh, uh, some kind of tent in the middle, like a Bedouin tent or something like that, which is held on by some really, really cheap clothes pegs. And then all I've done is I'm sat in my regular seat as I normally would. But I've just got the microphone raised up. I've got the protective shield around it. And I've got I've got my uh, the sponges on top. And I think it sounds better. It sounds, but it's really weird. I started recording this because uh, I'm a he- I'm a day ahead, of, not a he- about half a day ahead of myself. So I thought, sod it. It's a- instead of it being a Thursday morning and recording then. I'll, rec- I'll explain why in a bit. Uh, it's it's Wednesday afternoon, so I thought, well, I've got time. I I wrote this quite quickly, which is weird for me. This I flew through this episode, and I barely had to rewrite it. Um, so I thought, let's record it. And when I started talking, I thought, oh, it sounds weird. And then I've kind of realised, I think before I was used to kind of a little bit of reverb in the room and a bit of echo. But now, like everything, because all around me is kind of, you know, uh, soft stuff. I've got a little bit of wood there, which I'll try and work out how to get rid of. But apart from that, it's all soft. So it's, see, it deadened the sound. So for me at the start, it was a bit, little bit weird. I was like, oh, oh, I don't like this. But actually, I kind of get used to it. It's nice. There's 
it's not much not much echo so i think i think that makes for a better episode and also i think because i'm nearer to the microphone now that means i don't have to up the gain which means it doesn't peak it's so boring isn't it anyway everyone this is extra mile yay extra mile yay we're here we're back um so we've done all the how to get away with murder blah, 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 did all that we've got 10 episodes coming up um this is one of those episodes where I thought to myself, oh, I wonder if I should do this one because I knew a bit about it. And I looked into uh, looked into uh, the, the the story of what's written out there about uh, Constable Jack Avery. And I read it and I was like, it's not that exciting, to be honest. No disrespect to him, but it was a little bit dull. So I thought, oh, should I really do that story? But when I, when I pulled out the, the police file and started digging into it, actually... The other side of the story, the side that we don't get to hear about, you know, the homeless man, what he went through, actually that made it a little more interesting. So I've I've played a very careful game to make sure that people aren't saying, Oh, you say that he doesn't deserve his memorial. No, I'm not. I'm saying that I'm saying that he does. I'm saying that in fact more ordinary people deserve memorials, but that we should also look at this from the other perspective, because there is a different perspective to this. Not that all cases mean that we should have a memorial. Oh, I'm going to have to say this, aren't I? Because people will say, oh, yeah, so you're saying there should be a memorial to people who are murderers? No, I'm not. I'm saying that, as you can see with this case, because it went to appeal, and even even at the appeal they said, do you know what, both of them, uh, both of them kind of contributed to what happened in the end. So... Uh, so it's it's not as clear as the on the memorial it says Jack Avery was murdered on the spot, but actually it's not. It's a manslaughter, and actually both of them contributed to what became of that. Whereas if they would have just spoken to each other, that kind of would have solved itself. Which brings us back to how to get away with murder, episode one, which is good um, because it's an afternoon. I don't. I'm not going to have a cup of tea and a coffee, so don't expect me to go and make a cup of coffee. I'll have a water. And because I wasn't planning on doing an episode to record an episode today, I don't have a cake. I don't have any biscuits. I had a Belgian bun this morning and it was delicious because I've moved to a place where there's a Wenzel's nearby. Um, But I'm recording this in the afternoon because I'm opposite an industrial estate. And every morning, it doesn't matter what time I wake up, some burk in a truck pulls up. And he's always playing like the shit music that just has no purpose in the world anyway. Uh, so I was like, oh, how am I going to get through this? But I realised in the afternoons it's quieter. So even though I'll be woken up in the morning by, by dickhead on his truck, luckily I've, I've recorded this now and it wasn't too bad. And even though I'm next to a path where they've redone it and it, they haven't redone it very well, it's not... It's not quiet, it's noisy stones, so when bikes go past, you can hear it a mile away, it's really annoying. So, uh, But it was all right, it wasn't too bad, so actually the deadening of the sound in this room was good. Um, let's go through all of the... Uh, let's do some questions, then we'll do some stuff, and then we'll go back and finish the questions. Right, get yourselves ready, it's question time. Ooh, exciting. Ooh. Right, questions, full ten, get yourselves ready. Roar. Right, question number one. What were Jack and Frank's middle names? What were Jack and Frank's middle names? Question two. Which two countries did Frank serve in during World War One? He did one and then he went to the other. Uh, UK does not count, even though he got his basic training in the UK, he served overseas. Question three, where did Jack, 
uh, I've written a bad question. Uh, where did Jack go to enlist in the army slash police force? Because that's where we ended up. Where did Jack go to enlist? Uh, question four. What three defensive and offensive weapons were stationed in Hyde Park? Question five. Uh, what is Jack's memorial made from and what colour is it? Ooh, were you listening carefully? Ooh. Uh, question six. Uh, you could always cheat by just going to the blog because there's a picture of it on there. Question six. What font does... What font does the Met Police use in all of its branding and logo? Mm. Oddly, it's a font that many, many companies use because it's uh, very crisp and clear. Question seven. Frank's... Oh, Frank's sketch pad was used for sketching and what else? So what else did he use his sketch pad for? Question eight. Uh, where did Frank find the knife... Uh, that he used to protect himself. Uh, question nine. Where was Frank shot and what injuries did he sustain? I've just noticed a spelling mistake here, which you'll, I will chuckle at shortly. Question nine. So uh, where was Frank shot and what injuries did he sustain? And question ten. What did Jack do as a job before he became a war reserve constable? Interesting. So... Just going to do a quick announcement. I mentioned this before, but I, I, we're doing one a month until we build up to this. So this is very exciting. Uh, as mentioned before, Murder Mile UK Crime, Crime Podcast. I can't even pronounce my own bloody name. You, Murder Mile UK True Crime Podcast is coming to CrimeCon. And as you know, CrimeCon is the world's number one true crime event. It's coming to London Saturday the 12th and 13th, Sunday the 13th of June 2021. So, you know, about eight months away, eight, nine months away. It's the ultimate true crime weekend. It's a two-day event full of expert criminologists, profilers, authors, journalists, filmmakers, and some real-life uh, survivors of uh, true crime uh I was going to say podcast, but not events, uh, as well as Podcast Row. So I'm going to be there, uh, as well as loads of other uh, true crime podcasters from the UK and UK USA. We're going to be there. We're there for two days. Come and meet with us. Say hi. That'll all be good. There's also loads of stages. There's like 50 hours of content. Um, three of us are doing a uh, discussion. I don't know whether they've announced it yet, but I'm going to be one of the people doing a discussion. So that'll be good. Come along and see me there. If you want to save money on it, you can buy discount tickets, save 10% off by using the discount code MILE. Nice and simple, MILE, M-I-L-E. Just go to crimecon.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, as mentioned, this is sponsored by the Crime and Investigation Channel. Ooh, very exciting. Uh, and not only will you get 10% off if you use discount code MILE, but, as mentioned before, every single person who uses my product code, my discount code, will get a gift. So uh, if you book a, a one to three tickets, you'll get a nice envelope of Murder Mile goodies. More than three tickets, you'll get an envelope of goodies plus exclusive keyrings. Five or more tickets using my code, you each get an envelope full of goodies and keyrings and a Murder Mile mug. Not per person, just, just per five, sorry. Uh, then that goes up again, so ten... Obviously, two mugs, 15, three mugs. When you get, if you get a group of people together and you get 20 people to come along, you get four mugs. You each get a, a lovely Murder Mile goodies pack, and I'll give you a private Murder Mile walk. 
at a time to suit you. It can't be on the weekend of CrimeCon, obviously, but we can do it after CrimeCon. Uh, all gifts will be presented at CrimeCon. And uh, unfortunately, if you uh, cancel, then all, all gifts are refunded. Uh, just so you know, they have a, a COVID guarantee policy on this policy on this that's not to say that they've got a, a guarantee that you'll get covid um what that what that means is if you buy your tickets now and because of the pandemic the event has to be cancelled that's not a problem at all you get your full money back so even if you buy tickets now not really a problem not really a problem all good all good but it would be lovely to see you there so ooh, ooh, my mouse has just dropped uh, that's not a euphemism. I just want to say that. Um, so, just a quick uh, thank you to everyone. I I did a little uh, competition on Patreon. Uh, um, as as mentioned, Patreon is now my main income now because the advertising sales for the podcast are shite. They really are. They've really gone gone to the dog. So, Patreon is actually keeping me alive at the moment. So, I did a nice competition on there to to win like a, an exclusive murder mile keyring. Uh, I've sent out. Almost all of them now. So all the winners were Selena Dean, Johnny Rex, Liz Tibbet, Grace Ashby Walker, Jennifer Cowles, Keisha Blackstone, Sarah London and Simon Sandals. So thank you to you guys. That's really much appreciated. Uh, and you, your goodies will be en route. Um, let's dive into this episode. Some things that I may not have mentioned because as mentioned, you know, sometimes you've got to, you've got to whiz through details and I can't put everything in. But uh, I do love diving into weird details. Uh, something that's interesting, uh, PC Jack Avery, his parents obviously grew up in, in Mottingham, not Nottingham, but Mottingham, which is over in near Bromley. Um, when he was working for the police, they actually moved to a new place. So they were working as a housekeeper and sh- chauffeur to a very posh family who were living there called the Harvey family. Um, and they were living in a place called Lock House, Partridge Green in Horsham, West Sussex. Um, now I went looking for that to see. I was like, "Wow, it looks like they're living in a big house." But actually, there was a chauffeur to it. But when you look at the house, I googled it. It's the house that is is currently, as its moment, owned by Adele, the singer. Yes, and it's huge. It's huge. It's got a big swimming pool and everything. So uh, it's a very nice place. So uh, yeah, that's just a, a, an unimportant piece of information. Right. Let's dive in a little bit more. Uh, I've put everything in there that you need to know about their early histories to both men. Let's look at the murder a little bit more. So uh, uh, the police were alerted by George Ernest Bryant, a 40-year-old uh, carpent, a carpet layer of Sutherland Place in Bayswater, so just over the road. Uh, that was about quarter to uh, quarter to two, that would have been roughly. Uh, he, As mentioned, he saw a man lying on his stomach face down looking at the guns, uh, as mentioned, oh, let let me not ruin the question by saying what guns they were. Oh, God, I've already, I've already kind of done Oh, we know that anyway, don't we? Uh, lying on his stomach with a pad and pencil, sketching them. Uh, as mentioned before, that there was a new law in place that said it's illegal to uh, it's illegal to draw or photograph uh, weaponry in places like that. But obviously, how would people know that if you're not if you're not reading the paper and you're not absorbing it every day? How would you know that? It's like apparently it's illegal to take a picture of a policeman. Whether it is or whether it isn't, I'd actually know. I haven't actually checked. Don't let me know if it is or it isn't. I don't care. Um, but it's like, how would you know that unless someone like, like I mentioned it to you now and you go, oh shit, is it? I didn't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Anyway, um, uh, so as mentioned, uh, uh, George Bryant went to the police station. 
got uh, uh, Jack Avery. The, the 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 distance up to the site of where uh, Frank was is not far. It's literally you could you could you could dash it in about three minutes. I walked it myself, and I've t- I've taken some pictures there online, uh, and there's some extra videos I've done with this as well. So that's uh, interesting. Uh, when uh, Constable Avery uh, blew his whistle, not too far behind him was another war reserve constable called Hyman Krantz. What a name, Hyman Krantz. Uh, he arrived, he was coming not far behind. He said there was a short struggle between them. It's hard to get an accurate depiction of exactly what happened at this point. Um, uh, Frank received a blow, obviously, of a truncheon over his head. Uh, I think we've got a little bit of details about that later on. Uh, sorry, this. I'm trying to find all the details. Yeah, he, he said he threw his cape over the prisoner to kind of blind him, and then Jack hit him over the head with the truncheon. Uh, don't forget, this is this is because uh, this is wartime, and they they weren't proper. I hate to say proper police they weren't part of the metropolitan police they were you know the um the parks keepers really they weren't armed with guns so uh even though you know you could legally carry a gun in london around that time and actually a lot of people did uh none of the people involved there had guns uh almost almost all guns were probably were sent overseas to uh help the effort um there was a point, like especially at the start of World War Two, when when the war broke out, uh, because Britain really doesn't have any guns. When we went to war, we were like, "Shit, we don't have anything." So we 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 had to uh, apply to America, and a lot of their citizens went, "Yeah, sure, we've got we've I've got, obviously in America got lots of rifles and shit like that." So American citizens actually donated a shit ton of guns, which didn't go to fight uh, with our troops overseas, but was actually used for the Home Guard. Uh, to defend uh, the cities and towns. Um, there was a another officer there who arrived at the time, uh, Superintendent Alfred Baker, who arrived around two o'clock. He saw uh, he saw Frank on the floor with injuries to his head, blood pouring down his head. Obviously, you can appreciate the capillaries are really close to the head. Uh, so if you get a tiny cut on your head, that bleeds a hell of a lot. I remember. I remember when I worked at ITV years ago. We were watching. We were watching this morning, and there's three of us in our office: Amber and Donna and myself. And we were watching. They had a knife throw on this morning, and uh, I, I turned to Donna. And I was like, Donna, have they, have they done a risk assessment for this? Because it's a live knife thrower on telly. It's not a fake one. It is a. It is a knife thrower. And I was like, and she was like, uh, yeah. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> and the, the the knife was thrown at the top of this lady's head, and it was close to the head as it's meant to be, but because it nicked the top of her head, literally within within like half a split second, you saw a huge trickle of blood pour down her head. They had to cut to commercial, and then they had to come back and go, "Don't worry, she's fine. It's just there's there's a lot of blood because it's you know the yeah." So same with uh same with Frank. Frank was hit over the head, got a bit of a, a cut, look uh, bloodier than it was. He was slightly concussed as well. Um, didn't have much on him, as mentioned. Just a, just a, a razor, pension books, a little bit of money, and his his memo block. Uh, noisy boat going past. There's a little boat that keeps going past. He's got two workmen in it. It's very boring. And now they must be looking at my boat and going, oh, because every time they go past, they look in my windows and and to see what I'm doing. But now I've I've blocked up my windows, so they're probably thinking I'm up to some kinky kind of sexy stuff, which I am with Eva. Oh, it's a hard life being Eva's boyfriend slash butler slash slave, mostly slave. 
Um, um, Frank was charged by Detective Inspector Layton. Um, the exact thing that I, I put a tiny bit in there of what Frank said when he was arrested, but his exact words were, he shouldn't have interfered with me. I was only drawing, a, he says, an almanac near the, dr- the guns. I knifed him. He hit me with a cane, which is his truncheon. It's my knife. I found it in the dustbin. Whenever, look, luckily, uh, as they were going by, there were two. There was actually two medical students in the park, so they rushed to the scene as well, uh, and they were able to give immediate first aid, which was really useful when they were there. Um, uh, Charles, uh, even more lucky than that. So at the uh, the old police house in the middle of High Park, also based there was an ambulance station as well, which kind of makes sense having a police and ambulance station together. Um, so the ambulance, as the police were called, the ambulance were, call, were called as well. They were literally like a minute away. Uh, Charles Logan, who was the stretcher bearer, said uh, that uh, he was drawing the guns. Uh, I went up to question him and then he attacked me with a knife. I haven't put this in because it confuses the story. I never thought he had... Oh, no, this is what Jack said. Jack's, Jack said to him, I went up to question him and he attacked me with a knife. Strictly not true. I never thought he had a knife. Uh, uh, and then he said, I wonder if they will let me go to the hospital this afternoon. I have to meet my fiance. That was what Jack said. Uh, Charles Logan asked him if he could uh, give him the number uh, of his fiance and he would call him in, in advance to let his girlfriend fiance know that he'd been injured and he was going to hospital. Uh, but because Jack was drifting in and out of consciousness, he couldn't remember what the number was. Um, uh, Jack also asked if the other man had been hurt. Uh, he, he kept passing out at this point. When, when the ambulance arrived, actually all around his trousers, he'd, he'd been bleeding. And actually, by the time the ambulance arrived, it had started to form a clot. Um, I appreciate his uniform is quite thick as well. Um, the grass around him, I've got hiccups, hiccups and burpees. He's, uh, the grass around him was soaked in blood as well. And he was being attended to by two other soldiers, as you can appreciate, near the gun batteries with two soldiers. And the soldiers would have had first uh, first aid training as well. Um, uh, Frank Cobbett was assessed by Alexander Baldy, who is the police surgeon. We've heard of him many times before. And he said that Frank had a one-inch contusion to the back of his scalp, which was the truncheon, a crunch, crunchion? truncheon, and then one to the side of his left side of his scalp as well. Um, uh, uh, Jack Constable Jack Avery was taken to St Mary's Hospital in Paddington. We've been there many times before, um, and interestingly, when he arrived, they said that his injuries would not prove fatal. But obviously, this turned out not to be true. Uh, he was uh, he was in the extension ward, bed fifteen. Love those little details. Uh, PC John Vidlier, um, also of A section, Constable two five two, arrived at the scene. Um, stayed with Jack in the hospital. Said that his trousers were saturated with blood in and around the waist, and there was a cut right through the cloth just below his left pocket. Police were desperate to interview Jack. He was semi-conscious throughout. He was losing a lot of blood uh, when they interviewed him and they were waiting for an operation. He gave part of a statement, but by the time, uh, uh, I think uh, it says, Dr. Brian Rowlands, the house surgeon, examined him at 4.20pm. Single stab wound to the upper part of the left thigh, a large swelling around the left groin. Uh, And obviously he had to go in for an operation at 515 
because his femoral artery and vein had both been severed. Uh, there was a large hemorrhage, and the doctor said his condi- condition was dangerous, but not possibly fatal. Fate, uh, interesting words. Uh, it, it, it's weirdly, there was quite a few people who all said it didn't look fatal. Uh, at 9pm, he had a blood transfusion, and his condition seemed to improve. At 2.30am the next morning, 6th of June, his condition condition deteriorated, so he had a second blood transfusion and regained some consciousness. But at 8.20am, as they were preparing for a third transfusion, he died. Uh, His father, uh, Frank Gerard Avery, was with him at the time. Uh, As mentioned, they couldn't get hold of his girlfriend at the time, so she she didn't know. Uh, He gave a bit of a statement, but... Uh, as you can appreciate, there's always different sides to the story. So Jack actually said his statement was at 1.45 p.m. A man approached me and told me that a man was sketching a plan of the gun emplacements. I approached him and said, what are you doing? He gave me a piece of paper. That's not what the other witnesses said. Uh, on this was a square with July written on it, as you remember. Oh, that gives away part of the part of the answer. For oh, these bloody questions are a pain in the ass. This quiz. Uh, um, it's uh, obviously Frank said, "What's he got to do with you?" Uh, he then said that Frank stood up, picked up a knife he was lying on, and rushed towards me. Um, other people have said that Jack already had out. He saw the knife, got out of this trench first, and then. Uh, Having seen the, you know, having seen the knife, and th- and then Frank pulled the knife on him. So it's, which is why this kind of it went this one way in the court trial, but when it went to, uh, when it went to appeal, this is why it changed because it was kind of like, you know, they both had weapons on them at the same time. They both saw each other had weapons. They both went to attack each other. So and there was no premeditation from either of their parts, which is why it it ended up not being a murder. It was kind of a um, a an appeal. Uh, what else have we got? Um, Jack's autopsy was held that very next morning at 10.30am on Saturday the 6th of July. So just just like three hours after he dead, he was died. He'd been stabbed in the left groin. It was five inches deep, the wound. The knife had gone in right into the hilt. Uh, the autopsy was conducted by Sir Bernard Spilsbury, who we've heard of many times before. And he said death was by hemorrhage. Uh, as the femoral artery and vein had been severed on the left-hand side. What else we got? It's so gone in so deep it struck the thigh bone. So even though this, it just goes to show, even though this is only just one one wound, you know, that's all it takes to to kill someone. That could be that could be absolutely fatal. Uh, Police Sergeant W. Salisbury of the CID um, uh, arrested Frank at 11.15am that very morning, said, I've just seen the body, the dead body of Jack William Avery. The officer you, the officer you are at present charged with causing, causing grievous bodily harm to, um, and you are now charged with murder. To which Frank said, you say he is dead. I don't believe it. It seems impossible to me. I did not willfully murder this man. Uh, what else have we got? think that's kind of all of it as mentioned you know that he was uh, held at Brixton prison they said that he was he was sane uh, which is weird they say he's lacking mental ability but he's entirely sane to uh, stand trial I think what they mean by uh, lacking mental ability is you know he's he's had 20 years of not being with anyone he doesn't really he's not able to communicate that well because he lives inside his own thoughts 
Uh, but that was it. Yeah, so he, he was found guilty. Uh, was going to be he was ready to be executed at uh, Pentonville Prison to be hung. But his appeal, I don't think we've had a successful appeal on Murder Bar, Murder Mile before, was successful. Um, uh, they went back to Mad, uh, Marlborough um, uh, Street <coughs> Police Court on the third of July, nineteen forty. Uh, <coughs> oh, 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 my throat. Um, hang on, no. So, so it's after that. The appeal was after that, and they said. Uh, what they did was they, they said that um, you could clearly see that the two men had never met. They never knew anything about each other. They both had weapons on them. Um, how and when they pulled their weapons was kind of different according to different people's opinions. But they had no intention of killing each other. They were just trying to, you know, Jack wanted to apprehend the man and stop himself being stabbed. And obviously um, uh, Frank was trying to defend himself because he'd been beaten up so many times and he was only carrying a knife to defend himself because of the drunken louts. To be honest, think about it. If if it hadn't been for those drunken louts, Frank Jack would probably be alive. Frank probably would have just got charged with the minor offence of um, uh, doodling uh, the the guns. Even though in some part of the trial, it's interesting. They they said that actually it wasn't it wasn't strictly illegal what he was doing. It was part. It was part of the uh, the Defence Act, but it wasn't strictly illegal at that time. So, you know, uh, Sir Bernard Spilsbury gave evidence and said that the knife was stabbed five inches deep. Um, uh, the the jurors deliberated for about an hour, uh, and even Spilsbury at that point said said that the injury should not have been fatal, but actually it was. Uh, and that's it. I think that's all on there. That's good. That's good. That's good. 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 So, what else have we got? What else have we got? Uh, just a little something. I thought I'd mention this. Uh, sad day. Sad day. Last night, my my grand passed away, which is very sad. Ninety-four years old. Fantastic woman. Uh, I think some of you. I might put a, a tribute to her online. I don't like putting sad tributes on there because it's. Um, I, don't, I don't see the point. I think you should celebrate her life. So I've done a nice little tribute to her online about because she was funny and she was good fun and she was a really lovely lady and, you know, a, a bit of a wicked sense of humour. So that was said, I, I've, I've known for a long time that she was going to she was going to pass away. And I was her carer for a long time uh, until she got to the point where I couldn't care for her anymore. Because you know, sometimes it's beyond your ability. So uh, we knew it was happening, and it, it did. It happened last happened last night. I called I called up the care home just just my daily update to say how's she doing. They were like, she's very quiet, she's very peaceful. And then by the time they got off the phone and got back, they called me straight back and they said she passed. So uh, God bless her, lovely lady. Um, so let's do answers to the questions. Um, questions. Question one. Here we go. Uh, question one: What were Jack and Frank's middle names? They were, of course, William and Stephen. There you go. So, it was, uh, so question two: Which two countries did Jack serve in overseas during World War One? So I said Jack, then I meant Frank. What two countries did Frank serve overseas during World War One? That was France and Egypt. Uh, question three. Where did I've written these so badly? Uh, Question three: Where did Jack go to enlist in the army slash police force? Where did he go? 
it was Lord's Cricket Ground. Mm. As you can appreciate, uh, around that time they needed places that were just big. Uh, and the, the, the Royal Air Force, because Lord's Cricket Ground is right next to Regent's Park, uh, where the Blackout Ripper was based. Ooh. So they actually used Lord's Cricket Ground a lot for kind of, kind of functions and uh, 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 getting new people in. Uh, question four. What three defensive and offensive weapons were stationed in Hyde Park? They were gun emplacements, rocket barrage, a rocket uh, written barriers, uh, rocket. Oh, what's the word? What's it? Rocket things begins with a B. Can't remember. And barrage balloons. Anyway, basically big big rocket launchers and shit like that. And then and then gunning places and then barrage balloons. And barrage balloons were the big balloons that you'd launch into the sky and they're tethered to like a big steel cable. And they go really high into the sky and it stops kind of bombers coming in because obviously, you know, if they get trapped, snared in the big wires, they will get they'll you know, they'll just fall out of the sky. So uh, there was lots of those. Uh not just in Hyde Park, but all the Royal Parks, Bushy Park as well. So uh yeah, all across London. Um but it, it kind of takes a while to find these information because as you can appreciate no one re- they moved a lot, no one recorded where they were, so that that's taken me ages to find that information. That was a pig. Um Question five What is Jack's memorial made from and what colour is it? It was grey slate. Ooh. Question six. What font does the Met Police use in all of its branding and logo? Obviously, Police Constable Arsenal Guinness. I would expect you to know this. Probably don't. (laughs) Uh, It is Arial. Standard font, which many of us use uh, on Word documents. If you look at things, I think Pan Am use Arial as well. And there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of world famous companies who their branding is just a very basic font but when you look at Arial it's it's clean, it's crisp, it's easy to read you can read it from a good distance away that's why people choose Arial Um, question 7 Frank's sketch pad was used for sketching and what else? I almost gave it away in the uh, things we just did it was, he used it as a calendar uh, it was marked from July to October. Uh, he'd marked all the days in, uh, but he'd only he'd only filled in for four days. Uh, he'd put the dates in, like first, second, third, fourth, and then nothing else was in it. So he used it for sketching after that, which I think is quite sad because that shows that shows how empty his life was. Um, question eight: Where did Frank find the knife that he used to protect himself? I probably gave that away, didn't I? In the bin. It was in a in a dustbin. Uh, question nine: uh, Where was Frank shot, and what injuries did he sustain? I've written. Oh, you bastard! Sorry, my um, my laptop just switched off. You're not a bastard. You're you're lovely. My laptop just switched off. Um, uh, uh, what what injuries did Frank sustain? Uh, I've written here. Uh, he was shit in the sh- shit in the chest. Obviously, he wasn't shit in the chest. He was shot in the chest. Uh, uh, the bullet blasted out of his back, and it ripped him from shoulder to shoulder. So he was re-stitched, and you know, but he, he was sustained uh, injuries and had pain for the rest of his life. And question ten: What did Jack do as a job? What did Jack do as a job before he became a war reserve constable? That was, he was a motor mechanic. So, 
that was that that's good i think that that extra mile wasn't too long it wasn't too boring either uh good that all looks good so that's that done we got another episode coming out next week uh another episode which i'm i'm interested to do is one of these ones where i thought ooh, should i do it should i not do it but actually looking ooh, hiccups looking into the details it it seems like another case that you know having looked further into it i think to myself hmm i will do this one so there's a couple of those coming up there's some interesting ones so that's that that's your uh extra mile for this week uh, hope you enjoyed that hope you enjoyed the episode uh, and i will hopefully hear from you all next week um, hope you're all safe stay safe stay good stay mentally active stay uh, positive you know we're in we're in a time where not where you know, we can't control a lot of things that we're doing it's out of our control it's up to the virus and it's up to us being cautious and careful and safe and you know helping each other so um that's that that's good uh, stay safe and I'll see you all soon. Uh, lots of love. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.